I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. We're back for episode three with climbing photographer Jim Harrington. Imagine spending nearly 20 years traveling to remote corners of the globe on a non-existent budget in order to compile images of famous climbers and mountaineers. Jim Harrington has committed a large portion of his life to accomplish just this, and in the process has created a staggering work of photographic beauty that will be cherished by climbers for many generations to come. Harrington's seminal work, The Climbers, captures portraits in stunning black-and-white analog film of prominent climbers from the Golden Age. These iconic pioneers were primarily active from 1920 to 1970 and pushed the ceiling on a fringe and dangerous sport as they chased visionary first ascents. The list of subjects in Harrington's book is staggering. They include some of the brightest lights to ever tie into the sharp end of the rope, including Fred Becky, Royal Robbins, Yvonne Chouinard, Reinhold Messner, Ricardo Cassin, Jules Eichhorn, and many, many more. Through his evocative work, Harrington challenges our own concepts of aging and mortality, obsession, determination, and what it truly means to experience a life well-lived. In our wide-ranging conversation, he touches on all these topics and what he learned from his subjects. I view Jim as a steward of climbing and mountaineering history and I think you'll sincerely enjoy a glimpse into the mind of someone whom the entire climbing community owes a massive debt of gratitude. You're originally from North Carolina. Yeah, I was born in Salisbury, North Carolina, 1963. Then Dad got a job in Charlotte, North Carolina. We moved there when I was about five or six. And did you stay there your your entire life? Or Yep, I stayed there until the early 80s and, and took off for California. you have siblings? Nope, only one. Only child. How was that growing up? I think it's great and bad. Um, I think I was fine with it. When I was young, I didn't know any different. You know, I was spoiled, obviously. And my parents divorced, so I was living with mom. So I was, uh, you know, probably a, a mama's boy of, uh, which, you know, has all kinds of meanings, I think. But um, I think as I got older, I wish that I had siblings as I really sort of learned the value of that and really saw what it meant with other friends of mine that had siblings. Yeah, I still wish I probably had some, but... Who knows? I would have been different. So right. this is my recipe Here you are. <laughs> for whatever it is I yeah. do, good or bad. Yeah, it was funny. I was reading Robin Williams' book, and he talks at length about being a only child and, you know, kind of locking himself in the attic with these huge spreads of toy soldiers. And just, you know, that's where a lot of his formative personality came from and the personalities he continued to develop for. I think Jonathan humor. Winters... I think was a only child also. Yeah, I think, you know, lonely child, on, uh, only child, lonely child, you have to be creative with your time. Or maybe not have to be, but you end up being. And just you probably dream a lot and you do, you have that time. You know, the downside is you don't get to play off 
play things off of people. So you probably, um, there's probably just ongoing advice that you would get through the years from your brother or sister. Probably not always good, but probably, you know, half the time good advice. And you don't, you don't really get that. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a mix of good and bad for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, are you folks still alive? Yep, they are. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. And they, are you close to them even though they're separated? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely see them, uh, whenever I can. Um, we're very close. Yeah. What did mom do? Mom was a housewife and just had jobs after they got separated when I was 11. Dad worked for ICI, which was a British, kind of like DuPont International, no, what's it called? Imperial Chemicals Incorporated. That's old uh, British Empire name. Right. They started in Manchester as part of the, uh, you know, Manchester was the head of textiles in the world for a certain amount of time. Victorian days, 1800s, I think. And he was um, a dye colorist. Yeah, kind of an expert in that. So he represented, he was kind of a sales rep slash technician. And the South in America was very strong in the textile biz. Um, I guess one of the biggest in the world, probably during, after the turn of the century through the 20s, 30s, 40s, mills all over the place, Virginia, North Carolina. And so my dad would go to these mills that um, used the ICI dyes and help them get fabrics to be color fast but you know this is in the 60s and he was going to these tiny mill towns which you know through that area would have had a lot of music um, bluegrass and country and he would go to the mills and work with these workers who were trying to get the products of ICI to you know be able to dye fabrics uh, well and he would get invited to their house for dinners, and he would always come back with these records from these really small-town bluegrass duos. And, you know, I looked years later, decades later, at some of these records he brought back, and they're worth, you know, hundreds of dollars, collectible. So it was interesting, because we were all into music, he was into music, and he was bringing these really sort of rare finds, as we later found out. So he was a traveling guy on the road five days a week. Yeah, and I thought it was cool last night. You you spoke to your parents' good taste in music. And that was obviously very formative. <clears throat> I took it for granted. But yeah, mom was rock and roll. And, uh, you know, Eddie Cochran, Jerry Lee Lewis, all that stuff she turned me on to. Dad was definitely big band swing. Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman, uh, Glenn Miller. But also some, not really bebop jazz, but um, a lot of other kinds of jazz around that. Show tunes. He wasn't really into country, but he was into bluegrass. And he turned me on to Johnny Cash, the early Sun Records stuff. So just, you know, the the best uh, foundation for me. Yeah. And stuff that I took for the rest of my life and still do. Very lucky. Planted the seed early. Yeah. Yeah, I remember as a kid listening to records in my folks house and you know at the time it was like billy joel and you know this is mid to late 80s for me but you know listening to that music as a kid through headphones you know it's just there's something magical about that that's timeless my dad had this thing called a heath kit heath kit was a, a kit you could buy 
and with all these, you know, components and you put them together and, uh, you know, tube analog and he had a hi-fi, it was a mono. So he had the amp, the preamp and stuff that he built. And there was this giant mono speaker and it was a big wooden thing. You know, it was part of the living room. It was a piece of furniture and it had a JBL speaker that was like 15 inches. And, um, you know, the sound out of that was amazing. Listening to the 1938 live at Carnegie Hall, Benny Goodman, which I was listening to at two years old, three years old, playing that record, hearing it out of that big 15-inch JBL, out of that big piece of furniture speaker. And I would lay there with my head on the floor up against the speaker, (laughs) I remember distinctly, and looking at the little red jewel, the on light on the heath kit and i used to get my eyeball very close to that just so it kind of diffused out into this red you know emotional spectrum of light listening to this there's a a song called sing 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 that's pretty famous benny goodman song and and on the live version at carnegie hall gene krupa goes into this uh Kind of well, the whole band takes a break. Gene Krupa does this drum solo, and uh, as he leads the band back into the the soaring finale, I remember imagining these uh, herds of buffalo coming over the horizon, or uh, elephants coming over the horizon. I used to lay there and get all these fantastic images listening to that. Oh, it's so cool. I feel like it's so multi-sensory too. You know where. To who knows where that's going in today's day and age where you don't have that at your fingertips, right? It's just a button on your phone. What's the whole dreaming thing, you know, putting my eyeball up against the, the, the little jewel light and the ear up against this giant, you know, it had that speaker fabric. Mm-hmm. It was like with, tacky, yarny. Very yarny, but it was also, you know, it had that mid-century kind of, you know, kidney-shaped sort of, it was black background with this sort of deep gold, almost brownish gold thread that was these kidney-shaped 50s. I remember the scratchiness against my ear of Uh that weird fabric, and um, I don't know what the kids do, but, you know, I don't like to poo-poo things too much, because I think kids are incredibly creative and they find uh, their memories and their stuff with whatever their day and age is yeah i don't want to be an old guy that shoots that down because they'll figure out their own magic yeah influences or perspective and it's it's their day and age it's not for me to praise or destroy right yeah that's a good point i've i really enjoyed reading about your you know the origin of your interest in climbing um, as a kid, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I just, um, I think these Life magazines that my dad, uh, I always say my dad, I, I'm assuming it was my dad, but we had around the house, um, 1930s is when Life magazine started in the age of the great magazine. I mean, that's how we got our news. There was newspapers, but I think most newspapers couldn't really reproduce photography so well back in those days. So Life magazine out of New York had these great writers. And, you know, as I later learned, these great photographers, Dorothea Lange and and various people shot for them. 
But I didn't know that. I was three years old crawling on the floor. But, you know, as soon as I could, I would start thumbing through these magazines. And, you know, the graphicness of those black and white full bleed photographs were really powerful in looking at these strange, you know, Paris or Kuwait or the North Pole or ships going across the oceans. And uh, I know I would have seen my first photo of a guy on a mountaintop with an ice axe. Um, I distinctly, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Ture, who knows. But I just, uh, I remember thinking that looks like something I would like. It was my dad, probably not then when I was three. I think we were still struggling. They were struggling just to have a kid and keep my shit and spit off of the furniture. Can I say that on the, <laughs> of your course, podcast? Yeah. The podcast gets an <clears throat> E for That's explicit. Right. But that, you know, really set in my mind. It's like mountains, people climbing them. And then just the photograph itself. It looks, it was so romantic in the clothes. And then we also had this Encyclopedia Britannica that I'm sure they bought used. So it would have been 50s encyclopedia. But back then they would have used stock photography to illustrate some of the entries. But probably were also five or 10 years old. So probably from the 40s. Right. So, you know, you would have photographs illustrating stuff, and I remember thumbing through there and then seeing, you know, a rare photograph of somebody climbing. Maybe it wasn't under climbing. Maybe it was under just Mont Blanc, and they used a stock photo, you know, two climbers, and the, and there it was again. It's like, wow, what is this thing with people going up on mountains? It looks great, just in an abstract way. Um, I mean, very much abstract. I later... Many years later, I kind of write about it in the book when me and Doug were doing this first descent on the back of Temple Crag, and it ended up turning into night. And there was a full moon, but you, it wasn't really doing much because there's clouds coming and a grapple falling on us. And it just, you know, it feels like you're in this vertical, abstract, expressionist woodcut. You know, climbing's so weird when you get in these terrains, it's vertical. That's crazy. And you're inside these shapes that, you know, especially in the Sierra are just so beautiful. The, and the whole Sierra looks like it was designed by a Japanese gardener. You know, it's so you know, amazing everywhere you look. But I've rambled on so far. I can't remember the question here. Of I think it kind of dovetails into that, you know, bit in the book where you're you've found the cl local climbing shops in your town. Well, and okay, yeah. That, so that was in Salisbury when I was looking at the... Uh, magazines and, and seeing these pictures but by the time we moved to Charlotte I definitely had seen enough of these photos to know that I wanted to do it but I had no idea you know I, I didn't drive I didn't have any friends that climbed I didn't know how to do it and one day this guy came to my junior high school from uh, Discovery which is a little spinoff of the YMCA and he was looking for kids to sign up for this program and he said, we'll, uh, we'll go backpacking. We'll uh, take this big bike ride down the Outer Banks of North Carolina. We'll go spelunking. We'll go skiing. And we'll go climbing. And I said, ding, ding, ding. So I went home, told my parents, I must sign up for this thing. And I did. And that was 1976 when I was 13 and uh, finally tied into a rope. Uh, they still had gold line. Which, you know, there was nylon kern mantle out by then, but the YMCA in Charlotte didn't have it. They had gold lines. So I got to learn on, you know, braided rope. 
But, you know, my dad loved to take us to the mountains, uh, me and mom, and I was already climbing on stuff. I mean, definitely drawn to it. It wasn't official. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I was uh, getting out there. It was kind of funny now that I think about it. It didn't seem official. I was climbing. I was bouldering. I don't know how hard it was, but, you know, it was whatever it was whenever I could find an outcropping. But it still didn't feel official to me until I tied into a rope. Right. You know, that's just my thought. And when I was it's like, in fact, I probably thought it wasn't official unless I had wool knickers on at that point and a <laughs> glacier glasses. And, right. You know, that's great. The whole thing was fantasy and romantic to me. Right. And then it materialized kind of in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, I like that in the, in the book, which the writing is, I think, so so fantastic but greg child um spelled out kind of a a similar path for himself how he got into climbing and all of us mountain people climbers skiers whatever have something very similar in their lives like a a path to a certain lifestyle Um, and i've always been fascinated by that common thread um, whether we do it for a few years or we devote our lives to it like the, the the subjects in your book why do you think the the mountain lifestyle provides such sublime contentment for us. I don't know, but, um, you know, there's definitely sort of a a place where I early on knew that having a coach yell at me to carry a ball through, um, a couple poles or, you know, throwing balls around on a manicured lawn was not for me. You know, I still don't have an answer for this. You know, how did all this adventure stuff seem so appealing? And it didn't to the boy next door that I grew up with. I think that stuff is in your DNA. I mean, you know, my dad, we also had a globe and an old atlas. And, you know, my I remember my dad showing me how to use the atlas. And, you know, every time anything came up in the news, we would open the atlas and look in the world where it was. So I just thought, you know, I got to go see these places. That was always, uh, I must. This You can't live on this planet without going to see these places. It felt like not only a desire, but a responsibility as being a human on this planet to check these places out. Right. Um, and good experiences when he and uh, my mom and I would go to the mountains. It just, uh, you know, the beauty of it sets you, you know, I, good experiences as a kid, I think, probably helped a lot. Just, right. you know the the temperature change the you know storms moving in i think if you have good experiences as a kid with the mountains you'll have them the rest of your life and i feel sorry for kids that didn't or would have to learn that later in life i had a lot of natural energy but i didn't want to apply it to you know ball sports and i think there was a time it's like what am i going to do with all this energy i want to do stuff but i don't want to do that stuff and all these lines came together, you know, the pictures, the mountains, um, how, music. Am I go- how am I going to do it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the music yeah, and right. the photography. It was all confusing to me for a while and, it, and exasperating. Right. Because I had this strong drive for all these things that seemed absolutely impossible in 60s, early 70s Charlotte. I think it's pretty rad to think about your experiences as a kid. Because I remember sitting in a deer stand with my dad when I was, you know, eight or nine and and you don't really realize the impact at the time but it it's it gets in your blood yeah it encodes you right something something very natural 
their kinship with the, with the world, but you're enamored with and heavily influenced by the, the Sierra. How'd that come to be? That's kind of crazy because I, I think on one hand, uh, my dad and his uncle was really a kind of this they were actually all from an orphanage, by the way. So they had an interesting, oh, I bet. I don't know how far you want to go with my history, but the, the Harringtons were quite, uh, happening for a moment in Salisbury, North Carolina. They had three markets that they owned and operated. They had the big house on Main Street. They they were doing pretty well until my dad's dad got in control of it, and he seemed to just be, from all I, for, for all I can tell, this kind of playboy and kind of went through the money. When his dad died, that worked so hard to get these all this stuff happening, I think my father's father just kind of ran through the money. We actually have a passport stamped Tokyo during World War II of his. Wow. And I can't figure out what he would be doing there. He was also on the Graf Zeppelin from Rio to uh, Berlin or wow. Hamburg or wherever it landed in Germany. I, you know, I, he was um, out having fun and I think blew through the money. And then died like uh, at 38. I always thought that seemed so old. but And the, uh, my grandmother tried to manage all this market stuff and money, but uh, she got ripped off, I think, by other family members. Anyway, I don't know the story, but she had to send the, the boys to the orphanage. So they grew up um, with that. But anyway, to get to the, you know, my dad and Uncle Fulton were very into old westerns. And all these westerns were filmed down around Lone Pine and Alabama Hills, like 98% of all those westerns. So I would be forced to sit through all these westerns with them. And uh, you start seeing the Sierra Crest. Like, oh, I've seen this background before. That's, I didn't know where it was. But then you see um, it show up again in a Humphrey Bogart movie and Bad Day at Black Rock with Spencer Tracy and a couple Twilight Zone episodes. And then I started learning about Ansel Adams, of course, and it's like, oh, the Sierra Nevada. Oh, look, there's that. I recognize that from the movies. And just, um, you know, North Carolina was beautiful, but it was pretty boring. And I grew up, California seemed very happening. Movies, Hollywood, these beautiful deserts and mountains. And California always flexed a very strong muscle in the way the, the rest of the country, you know, whatever, sports cars, movie stars, um, you know, the whole computer industry going out of here. I mean, everything seems to come out of California. And once I got into climbing, um, this strong Sierra-centric uh, vibe was coming off. You know, Chenard, Royal Robbins, and, uh, and this guy, Doug Robinson, who I started seeing his writings. It all was very magical. It seemed like the way to do it. And coupled with the fact that it was uh, in California and sort of gelled with all this other stuff, Jack Kerouac, and it just, you know, there was no other place for me. And all these components together, it, it seemed like the, in the weather, the sunshine, just enough storms to lay down tons of snow and then blue skies the rest of the time. It's like, how could you not, uh, how could you deny the Sierra Nevada? So right. it was my place to be as soon as I could get there. It was pulling you, as it does a lot of us. Big time, in so many ways. Yeah. Aesthetically, photographically, climbing, uh, geographically, geologically. Mm -hmm. the, the granite. Yeah. And I love the intro in the book that highlighted the 
Dawson, Icorn, Underhill, and Clyde first ascent of the East Face of Mount Whitney in 1931. Of all the stories, 60 climbers in, in the book, why'd you choose that for the intro? As I started reading about the Sierra and the, the climbing part of the Sierra, um, one unmistakable name that kept coming up, kind of legendary guy, was Norman Clyde. You know, he was probably my kind of original hero. I mean, after hearing about Royal and all that stuff, and it's like, ooh, what's going on in the Sierra stuff? Ooh, Norman Clyde, this guy that carried these 900-pound packs with two binoculars, three cameras, books in Greek and Italian, supposedly an anvil to to repair his boot. I don't know. I think he probably carried that up once. I don't think he was always hiking around with that anvil. But regardless, you know, he did all these first ascents uh, solo. And, you know, he was a guy that was a very learned, well-read. Did you ever see that photo of him when he's in San Francisco with the woman? And uh, it's taken on their honeymoon. Uh, what was her name? Intra- funny kind of name. Tuffy or, or Poofy or something. I can't remember <laughs> her name. But, obvi- you know, he's in a suit and a tie. And it's like, well, look at Norman dressed up. Got a hat on. I mean, just very proper. And they seem to be on a ferry or a boat in the San Francisco Bay. And this would have been, you know, early teens. And I think he wanted to be a teacher. And she died, I think, of TB. And I think it turned him and got him very depressed. And he took off for the mountains and never came back. You know, he's just one of those stories. He went native completely. You know, and I think his thing was driven by a bit of a, of kind of a depression or escape. And also a real love for it, too. But it wasn't all roses and Hallmark cards, you know. And I've ended up finding that a lot through the thread of climbers. Nature is always written about as this beautiful, perfect uh, escape. But I think that's bullshit. And I think if you go back in history and read the and how people perceive nature, you know, this climbing thing is really recent in the last couple hundred years. Mountains were really viewed as dangerous. Don't go there. Ugly things happen there. For the rest of humanity, going back to the apes, um, be careful. This, there's no, Only bad can happen in these places. I know I'm wandering once again from the original question, but, you know, I, I think it was the romanticism and those artists that really found a beauty in this intense landscape that in turn kind of drew people to come paint it. And as these painters got higher and higher up for viewpoints, this kind of climbing thing started happening, getting up into the mountains. But uh, once again, what was the original question? Just the the influence of, you know, someone like Norman Clyde. And, oh, well, and yeah. Why did, so why to choose that, you know, 1931? <clears throat> well, again, it was all coming together, this Sierra thing. And here was this kind of character that I kind of uh, identified with. Uh, not a perfect character. Not a, uh, you know, he's got a bit of a ba- dark backstory. And just the fact that he was up there doing these hard climbs by himself. And then I found out that... Uh, oh, he did this, you know, the highest mountain in the lower 48, first ascent of the east face. And who are these guys? Glenn Dawson, Jules Eichhorn. And so I started finding out about them. And once the light bulb went off to um, find them, uh, you know, Norman was dead already. Right. I think he died in the... 74. 74, so yeah. I missed him. But wow, here are these guys still alive, connected directly to Norman Clyde. Right. That's the stuff that gets me excited about 
this sort of this age documentary photography that I seem to practice a lot of times is uh, you can still go find these people with you know it's like stories out of the Bible <laughs> you know just ancient and you can go meet them that's right. incredible and uh, practice my uh, craft art or whatever you call it of photography and, right. uh, when you found them through Doug Robinson, is that correct? I can't remember. Uh, simultaneous with this interest that I wanted to do this, I had already thought about it, but this was um, 1998. That's when the project started, right? Well, I had. this is real early internet. You know, a Mac 2CI that's got a screen on it no bigger than an iPhone, but black and white. You know, it looks like something from the 50s now that I think about it. And however you used to Google back then, I, I somehow, uh, I found Doug Robinson's phone number. And it almost felt naughty, like, ooh, this is creepy almost, but I'm going to call him anyway. <laughs> and I called him up, and we had this two-hour conversation, because um, I was already a fan of his, uh, not just his writings in a basic way, but really his ethic and his love of the mountains. Right. I mean, it's really was... Um, in fact, more impactful to me than John Muir. I loved the John Muir writings, but, you know, Doug was, you know, a bit more modern and just, um, I think, got into these feelings and and more humor and, and different things than Muir did. I wanted to hire Doug as a guide. I wanted to go up and, like, experience the Sierra with one of my heroes. Why not? Right. I was, like, all ready to throw money at him and hire him. And I said, by the way... Um, it seems that Glenn Dawson and Jules Eichhorn are still alive. Do you know about this? Or maybe I only knew one, of, maybe just Glenn, and maybe he said Jules. I, don't, I really don't remember how, but right. Doug was definitely a supporter. And he said, well, why don't you come out? And I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll come out and get Glenn Dawson in Pasadena and then head up to the Sierra. Because you're still in North Carolina at this time? No, I had already uh, left. I had lived in California, New York City, and I was now in Nashville Okay, in the 90s. So I put this plan together to go photograph Glenn and then go meet Doug up in the Palisades, you know, the the amazing Palisades part of the Sierra where Doug had so much history that I'd read about. And he said, you know, hike up and meet me there. So I had photographed Glenn in Pasadena, got on a bus and took the bus up to the Owens Valley and then hiked in about 10 miles. And I, I find Third Lake under Temple Crag right at it's it's getting dark and um <laughs> doug wasn't there but he had a tent set up he said i went back to town for a couple of days <laughs> so i hung out and then doug showed back up and we just had this uh, really amazing week or two 10 days maybe climbed at some other places too on the other side of the where did we go what's that place with the yellow rock on the west side of the sierra um the needles okay we ended up at the Needles, but anyway, at the beginning, we're in the Sierra, full moon. We do this first ascent, a real magical thing for me. Yeah, climbing with a hero. Climbing with a hero, doing a really cool first ascent and, you know, some rather uh, exciting conditions. Right. And really, I'd been up to the Sierra a lot before, but, you know, him pointing out just off the cuff all these stories and... right. Uh, you know, facts that I wouldn't have gotten on my own. Right. It's like taking a guitar lesson from Keith Richards, right? Yeah. And then him, you know, my kind of interest in, you know, here's a guy that can lay it all on the line. So he was, uh, he he had been around Norman Glide. It's like, holy shit. I mean, yeah. this is just stuff I'm looking at in dusty books. And right. here's Doug with stories of this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, 
I want to go back to Dawson and Eichhorn, but I view Doug as like a, um, he bridges the gap between the the real pioneer hard men and today. Absolutely. And he, he blew my mind last night when he told me that he had heard Norman Clyde present, you know, just fascinating. But when you, when you shot Dawson and Eichhorn, Dawson, he was what, about to move out of his house of 50 years and, and Eichhorn was in really poor health, right? Dawson had lived in this house in Pasadena for 57 years. He literally left after the photo shoot. I mean, he left with us. He locked up the door. We saw him. My friend Peter was with me. And uh, we saw him lock up with his son, I think, and his son's wife. can't remember who was there, but that was it. His wife was in poor health, and she was going to an assisted care facility, and he was going to move with her just to be with her. Which, oddly enough, is somewhat of a common thread through the book with the characters who are in their 80s, 90s. Well, you know, when you go after when you're uh, when you're when your prey is elderly people, you're going to be in that world of mm-hmm. finding people at various stages of decline. Unfortunately, some astoundingly not so, some obviously so, and which brings us to Jules Eichhorn, I guess, up in Redwood City in the Bay Area. He was pretty bad off. Uh, his wife was extremely spunky and told me a great story. You know, I think they had a very wild, interesting, romantic, fun life. But there was Jules pretty much in bed all the time and just lifted out into the wheelchair uh, when he needed to be. He was at the end. And I really caught him. I was very lucky. I, I just, I don't know, weeks later, it might have been impossible. But I wasn't really interviewing people, but... I did, Glenn and Jules, uh, record questions and answers. Oh, cool. I I quickly found out that that was too much to kind of do, to really get good photos and with these people that don't have a lot of energy sometimes to do an interview. So I cut that part out, the taping every time. But They were... The initial plan was just to highlight those iconic pioneering Sierra climbers. Is that right? I, there was no plan. I mean, like I've you know done with the music people and a lot of other things, I just, here's a person I need to get. And I know I make it sound off the cuff and, and super, I don't know, amateur, but you know I'm very serious about what I do and always have been. And I feel very strongly that these people should be documented. And the photography itself, you know, I'm serious about doing a very good job with that. At the beginning, I was just kind of turned on to finding these guys. I didn't know where it would lead. It's too much to think way off in the the, the future of how things might go. And these guys are going to die, so I'm going to go get them. Right. And, you know, I've never had, like, a producer or a budget to go and really okay, let's put a list together. We're going to knock these guys out in six months. You know, I've never had that kind of help or um, luxury to kind of plan it like that. But after shooting those two um, and Doug Robinson, so those three, and really that was kind of the, uh, I didn't even know it then, but defined the parameters of what I was going after, which was 1920s to mid-1970s, like when I started climbing. I wanted the whole book to be pre-me. So there I had it right there. You know, I mean, Doug was really 60s too. And then I thought, well, I was back there climbing again. And it's like, wonder if I can get Chouinard. Wonder if I can get Royal Robin. And just piecemeal, I started putting it together thinking, you know, maybe this will be something. Somebody will like someday. Or maybe it's just me. It's my little butterfly collecting, coin collecting, nerdy project that nobody's interested in. Nobody knew about it. 
some of my girlfriends would, you know, kind of arch their eyebrows like you're spending your last last bit of money going out and finding these people. Nobody understood it. But, you know, it finally grew. It, it, I started getting these Sierra people and got quite a few of them. And then I got Bradford Washburn, who was Massachusetts, Boston, nothing at all to do with California as far as I knew. And that, ooh, suddenly that was Americans. What and then I, it went international. And later on went international. But each step was baby steps and very slow. And, you know, finding these phone numbers. Uh, and, and this is still early Internet days. Most, a lot of handwritten letters going to people. Not everybody had email addresses. You couldn't search. There just wasn't much to search on the internet. It was it's a different time. Fairly useless. I mean, it's sort of helpful, but really, it was word of mouth, books, phone books. You know, calling information, right. writing letters. But throughout the project, I mean, that's it's twenty years of your life and the kind of the dogmatic commitment to capturing your idols. That takes a lot of drive. I mean, you talk about sleeping on park benches, spending the last of your you know money, and I think we're all indebted to you for that. And I think as time plays out, that will become more pronounced because it's such an encyclopedic work. But where where did that drive come from for you? I don't know. In a way, I think it makes a good story now. And thank you for saying you're indebted. Oh, and it, we are. And it did turn out to be a, you know, a project, but that's not, you know, I wasn't feeling very heroic <laughs> when I was doing it, I promise you. Well, I was into it, but you know, it really felt pretty useless to everybody else, I think. I just, yeah, even client, you know, I knew some older climbers, like, why would you be photographing these people that don't even climb anymore? You're not even shooting them climbing. And they're old people. It's like how non-newsy can you get? And but I think right there, I lies just couldn't the get it. It's like how could you know? I don't know. I I think it's really fabulous. I mean, I never had a doubt what I thought. I thought it was cool, but I did find it curious that people I would have thought would have really dug the idea thought it was kind of stupid. Frankly, Doug really got it, instantly got it. But um, there are some others I won't name names. I was really sort of disappointed that they saw no value in it. Again, it was this quiet thing. I could do it whenever I got the money to go fly off somewhere. And as I got more of it, it, it started feeling more important the more I got. And there was a feeling early on that I had to be a completist. I had to get over that mindset pretty quick because people would die just budgetarily. I just couldn't go and wipe all these people out in one go. You know, there was a lot of disappointment when someone would die or in a couple cases refused to do it. But mostly people agreed to do it. And it seems heroic now. It seemed, you know, almost a pain in the ass to girlfriends or, you know, it was just hard work, a hard, sort of expensive, weird hobby that right. not many people got for a long time, which that's which a, gave me, you know, doubts, too, at times. Like, why am I what am I going to do with this? Is this anyone anyone would ever care about? Right. I thought I, I never didn't think it was a really cool idea, but. I'm full of ideas that I think are cool that nobody else cares about. It seemed like another very non-commercial, <laughs> right. obscure thing for me to go after. But good ideas are a dime a dozen. Actually implementing and executing on them is a much different story. And for me, and I think someone like Doug, who obviously sees the value in it, you're cutting edge climbers and skiers. You can only relate to what they're doing to a certain degree. And it's great. We all need heroes. But for me, the beauty of the book is you're capturing these these iconic people who have lived this full life, but you're talking about a topic bigger than these sports, right? You're talking about aging and, you know, shooting them in their last days or their last years where they've lived this fully realized life. Those pictures speak volumes, you know, and I think that that as a 
kind of just a general topic in life that no one here gets out alive and and the clock does not stop ticking for any of us these people weren't immune to that even <clears throat> though they were deities in our world well i had to learn that uh philosophy of life myself and kind of through this project I think a lot of people, you know, when they see that you've done a book, they think, oh, he's uh, one of the experts on this field. But, you know, I don't think any uh, documentarian would go after a story they really knew everything about because part of the fun of it is uh, learning as you go. And that's why you would suffer <laughs> through such a project because you keep getting interested in learning more. As I went along with these people, I discovered that it absolutely wasn't just about climbing. In fact, in some ways... You could almost say it wasn't about climbing at all. It was about, not to, you know, polish it too much, but aging, how you deal with uh, getting closer to the end. The disappointment of learning, you know, these people are very active, very physically uh, gifted and, you know, trained. You know, they're racehorses in a way. They're And what happens when you spend a life of obsession going after these things that mean so much to you and to... And a lot of the cases of these people not being able to practice it anymore, you commit so much of your life that you even, you know, as I said last night, you can mess up your finances. You probably ruin some relationships. It's climbers, like the music and rock and roll people I've shot, it, you know, and a certain ego takes over. It has to, to right. be in shape, to leave home and hearth, to go to halfway around the world to do this pointless activity mm -hmm. of climbing. I mean, how useless, as Therese says, or Rebefe, right. conquistadors of the useless. So, yeah, I started learning um, about all these concepts that were really interesting. And the mirror kind of uh, reflected back at me of my obsession with getting these people and my own dodgy finances and putting some relationships in peril to go after this. So... Yeah, I don't think it's just a climbing book. No, not at all. I think if people choose to kind of read into a lot of what's going on and certainly read my writing and Greg Child's writing, who did an amazing job of the historical part, I would like to think people find a bigger concept to the whole thing. Right. And I guess you could argue that that's the whole point of photography, right? You're telling a story through a, a snapshot in time. But I've also heard you say that you didn't want to be a bystander in life and that you wanted to tell a story. Where, where do you think that came from? Was that from your youth looking at magazines as a kid? I don't know. That's probably also some kind of ego thing. You know, why would you why would you not want to be a bystander? First of all, I mean, what what are we? Two different kinds of people. There's bystanders, and then what's the other one? Proactive uh, doers. So what's wrong with being a peasant that plows the field and goes home at night, and that's it? And that you know, I think these things get very you know spiritual, religious, philosophical really quick when you think about it. The way you live your life, you're you're seventy six point five years on this planet. But why should you be getting a book? Uh, why aren't you in the fields doing, why aren't you baking bread for the community? But I will say early on, I thought I had this nebulous concept that your responsibility as a human on planet Earth was to go out and live it and see it. It's a really amazing place of beauty and experience and people and potential friends, but it's certainly potential interesting characters. And I just thought there's not enough time to see and experience all this stuff. And I, I live a life of, of a certain non-contentment, which I don't think is good. I think it sparks an adventurous 
spirit, but I think uh, all these things also have a dark side. And I think that runs big time through the climbing world of there's always another one. Why can't you just stay home and be happy with your wife and just, you know, I find that incredibly stupidly boring, but I also really sort of value, you know, not value, but uh, um, admire that. I mean, I could go so far as to say the happy idiot Mm -hmm. who doesn't know what's beyond the fence. He's Mm -hmm. never seen. I mean, that must be absolute bliss, really. I would love to have that sometimes. I'm always chomping at the bit. I need money to go here. And there's 50 projects I want to do. There's not enough time. It's fun and it's great. And you get to do a book and all. But man, it's exhausting also. And and I think it leaves you with a certain amount of dissatisfaction. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, I've I've always questioned that about myself. Things can be good enough. And when when they're not from your own mental constructs and why is that you know and what does that mean but that's you know maybe someone who lays on a couch can can answer that question i haven't zinned out enough that way yet i would like to right i'm not against it yeah my wife always says yeah we can really unpack that if you want and i think i don't know if i want to do that (laughs) no but it's interesting you're a tremendously accomplished photographer and a lot of the Folks in the outdoor world don't know how, you know, big of a deal you are in musical photography. Who have been your favorite subjects? I know you talk about your original photo of Benny Goodman, but all of all the years and and all of the projects you've been on, who've been the the highlights for you? Well, um, because we're talking people like Willie Nelson, you know, Mick Jagger, The Stones, Dolly Parton, Morgan Freeman. I mean, the list is, is pretty endless. I mean, I can pretty, I can go through the list for all kinds of reasons of who was great, why they were great, or why the experience was as good, or maybe it's just that I got a good picture. Maybe I didn't even like the person, but I ended up getting a great photo. So there's all kind of ways to take it. But easily right off the bat, I can say Dolly Parton, just because not only is she huge, I mean, it was quite a coup, I think, to get her, but she's so talented and so friendly and so down to earth and so professional. She has every, she's at a 10 on any way you want to look at it. She makes everybody in the room feel fantastic. She's um, self-deprecating, doesn't take herself serious, and yet she's a phenomenal businesswoman, amazing actress. I mean, you know, she wasn't just a musician that made some movies. She's like a fantastic actress. And the whole experience was great. She understood my photography. It wasn't one of these things that sometimes happens where, well, we'll, just, we'll use this Jim Harrington guy, and, and but we'll, we need this kind of photo. She knew what I did, and she helped direct the whole thing to being towards my strengths. So she, you know, in a way, a weird way, produced it. You know, we talked a lot before the pictures. It was just great. You know, it was a real feather in my cap. The the photos turned out great. She was wonderful. I really respect her on all levels of life. Carl Perkins, who was an early rockabilly guy, he was at Sun Records in Memphis that produced the earliest Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, kind of the teeny tiny factory that invented rock and roll. And one of my big heroes, one of the great songwriter, guitar players also. He was like going to my grandfather's house. He just, you know, I became friends with Carl Perkins. I used mm-hmm. to stop by his house. I would drive through jackson tennessee on my way to memphis all the time and call him from a payphone booth before cell phones and he'd say boy i don't drive through jackson without stopping at carl's house so i'd go over there and spend a few hours his wife would always give me cookies but lots of good experience i mean shooting the stones was 
insane. But there's a lot of people that aren't famous at all that I were as big as any of this. Um, right. Just like in the just because I was a fan and or we got along great and became friends. Did you see parallels between the musicians and the climbers? I probably didn't think about it until really I came out with the book and was asked that on the book tour. But I mean, here I am again, going after these old legends in two very different fields, I suppose. One would think. I mean, everybody brings it up to me. What, you, you shoot these rock and roll stars and then you shoot the climbers. How weird is that? It's like, I don't know. I've always been a climber and I've always liked rock and roll. It's always just been two parts of my life that didn't seem weird to me until people pointed out. It's like, so how long has that mole been on your forehead? Huh? huh? Oh, God. <laughs> you notice? But, I, you know, as I started getting asked that, it's like, well, here are these people that are fringe outsiders, especially uh, rock and roll people in the 50s. They were, I mean, that was punk rock stuff. People used to burn records, rock and rollers, with their greasy hairdos and dangers to daughters. They were few and far between in those days, and they were um, suspect fringe kind of people and i think climbers had to be in the 20s and 30s and 40s i mean how many people were doing this odd activity not many not many at all with the same kind of drive and i mean i guess people that played football had a drive to do that but i never seemed to see that kind of obsession and kind of weirdo lifestyle so much around musicians or climbers right it's a real clicky lifestyle obsession kind of driven activity. So I see a lot more similarities than people would think in these two groups. That's, which is fascinating to me. They both so, don't bathe all the time. <laughs> abuse their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been told that you were close with Tom Petty. Was that difficult when he passed? Yeah, it was really sad. Just um, I had moved to uh, California, LA in the early 80s. And Tom Petty, because I'm from the South, but when I was, you know, in the 70s, there was this Southern rock thing. I don't know if you know about that, but mm-hmm. I hated it. It was just this real redneck. Um, Leonard Skinner. Uh, yeah. You know, I've actually come around to sort of appreciating Leonard Skinner's music, but when I was a kid, it was very, uh, it was like the anthem of these dumb rednecks that I grew right. up with. Almond uh, Brothers, shit like that. Again, you like nowadays I can appreciate the the musicianship, but it was such a soundtrack to the dumb redneck. And I'm sorry if I'm offending people, but that's just the way it was. It's where we're from. I was a guy that liked Elvis Presley and 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 punk rock that was starting to come, which I to me felt like 50s rock and roll. It was just stripping it back down. But um, Tom Petty was a Southerner even though he'd already left. But, you know, you knew, we all knew Tom Petty was from Florida, and he was, I don't know, remember how. My friend uh, Randy Green's older brother was a big influence on us. He worked at the record store, and he was very cool. His suggestions carried a lot of weight, and Tom Petty's from the South. And so we were big fans. This was a guy playing rock and roll again. It sounded like rock and roll, not just rock, but it had the roll in it. And it was kind of, you know, in a weird way, kind of proud. Ooh, look, a Southerner in the 70s making, like, really good stuff that we could dig. And so then I ended up out in Los Angeles, and I met this guy who uh, had been doing artwork and design stuff for Tom Petty and some other people. And one day he said, uh, hey, Jim, come over. 
bring your camera. I'm going over. Tom Petty's rehearsing over in the valley. Wow. I need to drop over there and uh, drop off some stuff. So I went with him, and uh, there we are in Frank Zappa's little rehearsal joint, Joe's Garage, I think it's called. And we hung out for like three or four hours and um, met the guys. Everybody's friendly. I, I snapped a few shots, smoked a joint. And then we're leaving, and Tom's kind of holding the door open for us, and he says, uh, see you tomorrow. I'm like, damn right you will. All right. <laughs> and that just became a couple years of shooting him and the band. So oh, yeah, and he said something about some, of course, the word now is not good, but he's like, nice to meet another Confederate. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, he was, a gr- he, you know, he was my first real blue-chip celebrity. Like, you know, I'd had some... Good pictures, okay, I guess, and some kind of cool music. But, you know, getting petty in there was like, holy grail. Wow. And someone I really loved that was also famous. So that gave me a huge break. Right. You know, oh, you've been hanging out with petty? We trust you now to shoot anybody. Right. Is basically what it meant. Yeah, pedigree. The powers that be. Right. That's awesome. And a super cool guy, I will say. Greg Childs says your work seeks to prove that passion could be a life instead of a hobby do you think the book is successful in that well i think the book is um a uh tangible bit of evidence of that yeah i mean i I guess i was doing it already but um now i've got something to sell (laughs) (laughs) for all the work but you're sitting down with these folks who have dedicated their entire lives to one thing and like you said it could have wreaked havoc in their personal lives or their finances or their you know, real world commitment, so to speak. But I think it does. You know, I think it's a blueprint. And we talk about it often with guests. There's this modern day samurai effect. And and not a, I don't think a lot of people in life who commit to one pursuit really understand the fulfillment in that. Well, I think that that's actually good because <clears throat> I probably do live in a bubble of sorts. I've been in this music world and the, the climber, you know, I've, I've lived that world since I was a kid. I've tried to, you know, living, you know, pretty immersed in your passion. Right. You know, I probably do take it for granted, as do some of my friends that live kind of that same kind of world in these music worlds and climbing worlds. You know, we're very extremely lucky. I mean, you look around the world, I mean, not to mention starving people in half the planet. I mean, look, this frivolous luxury we get to practice of this, again, it's all meaningless stuff. And you see people in Africa and all over the world that well, I think it's me- don't have the choice. But even in America, people that are living in, you know, working in cubicles. And I don't want to put this stuff down, uh, but I'm just saying, um, and, the, you know, it is a selfish life, too. Sure. I mean, when you look at the rest of the way people are living, it, there's no doubt about it. We live a selfish life with right. following these passions. But... That also bounces off the wall of what I said earlier of this. I feel like it's a responsibility. Why should you be the, you know, one of the, you know, the guys in the field getting potatoes for the community? I mean, this is my life, 75.6 years, whatever it is, on this amazing planet. Uh, why don't I get the choice to go and live it and see it? Right. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not a jaded thing, you know, it's a, it's a big enthusiasm for life right? to see it and experience it. I think it could be meaningless on the surface to someone who might not understand the commitment. And yes, it's undoubtedly a selfish pursuit, but at the same time, you look at the people in your book 
who have committed their whole lives to that and and the influence well one that the book will perpetuate into time immemorial down the road because it's a physical body of work but also the you know the effect they've had on people along the way whether it's partners you know in the pursuits or their family or for me it's no different than like you spoke about a spiritual pursuit you know going to church every sunday for a person who who is into that angle you know there's you can break that down on many different levels that mountain passion if you will well i guess you can also say like the way you uh you know maybe a, a way to live life is a way that would it influence others and we're all you know there's massive important people in the world that have great influence uh, for good reason i'm not saying i do but i think Maybe a way to live life is to, you know, if you're uh, sparking a fire in someone or inspiring them, maybe you're living a good path. I mean, I don't guess there's many odes to potato farmer songs. Maybe there should be, and there's nothing wrong with that life. But, you know, I feel like it is a great planet and life, and you should be enjoying that and taking part in it as much as possible and hopefully rubbing it off on other people. I've been nothing but inspired and just juiced by everybody I've ever read about. I get so excited reading about all these people that have done these things. And uh, I feel like I'm at the bottom of the totem pole of these heroes of mine in the photography world, music world, climbing world, writers, filmmakers, all of it. I think it's nice to live a, a, li- a rather exciting life, hopefully. Yeah. yeah, it's a good point that you make. You know, you're a self-admitted romantic with a deep connection to these personalities and how they live their lives and who they were as unique humans why do you think there's that connection to the subjects that you're shooting whether climbers or musicians maybe i don't know somehow i got really interested in history and i'm not saying history major i'm just saying in the 60s when i was a kid in a small town it's boring somebody said if you don't have anything interesting to say make something up And I think that's what the South, in a lot of ways, with storytelling, runs rampant with. Bullshit, lies, fabrications, anything to cut the boredom. And, you know, and my family was very good at that, especially on my mother's side. Uh, A lot of humor, a lot of stories. And it was always old stuff, you know, old movies, a lot of old music. It just was. I don't know why, you know, the town that I was born in looked like the 1930s. It hadn't changed. The whole thing, you know, everything, the buses, the, the street lamps, the infrastructure, it just, it looked like the old movies that I was enjoying starting to look at. I don't know, man. It just early on, old stuff. I had little concern with what was happening besides punk rock and maybe, you know, here and there, some current photographers. Uh, I was just really drawn to, and even now I love to cook. I love these kind of old Mediterranean kind of styles of cooking. So as I started going out with my camera, it seemed like there was plenty of people documenting what was happening now. There was no shortage of people, but I just wanted to do something different and obscure that nobody was doing also. And so, you know, I was wanting to go down into the cracks and crevices. And who's, who's forgotten? Oh, look at these people. They're, they're amazing. They're just older. That's all. Right. Still the same they're person. They're still as amazing. They did this amazing life. I want to go after these people. Right. And uh, before they die. I don't know. That's cool. Heavily drawn to old stuff. Right. Still always was from a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. It's cool. And the list of names in, in the book is staggering for anyone even remotely interested in in the history of climbing. And, 
you know, I found it when it's paired with the the beautiful prose from Alex Honnold and yourself and and Greg Child, you're you're talking about absolute luminaries of the sport. You know, Becky, um, Cassine, Messner, Chenard, and I really like that you drive home the fact that a lot of these folks were climbing before World War II and World War One and before the television existed. And as someone who's significantly younger than the subjects, how how did you balance that? age difference or did you just show up and run with things well i i think i really am what they call an old soul i think it's just i've always found it very easy to talk to people and i think yeah i never got why there could even be an age uh you know some kind of battle between the ages i guess yeah, but i've known a lot of people my age whether it was when i was 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 they just have some automatic wall up Old people, what what would we talk about? And I just uh, I never Every, understood it. Everything. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe my enthusiasm enthusiasm comes across when I meet these people. It's like, you know, an older person, they are kind of segregated away. It's like, well, nobody wants to hear my old war stories. Like, I do. I do. Right. It's always been just easy. I get along with old people probably better than young people. Right. I don't know. It's never even been a thought. Right. Well, and there's that adage, if you're willing to listen to that generation that precedes you, you can learn so much. But there is an ageism kind of schism in society, I think. We do put them away. And and I'm also, you know, interested in that era, too. So I think a lot of times they're surprised, like, how do you know that? How, do you, how does a young guy know all this? It's like, well, man, I'm, you know, with the music, too. Right. I've read every book printed practically on, you know, that older music stuff and so i think that you know they feel like they're talking to somebody that is interested and understands and that's uh and cares and cares it's pretty easy i think there's no magic to it right along with you know the famous names of the book there's a lot of lesser known names but with equally compelling or you might argue sometimes more compelling stories they lived iconic lives did you find that the lesser known climbers had different stories than the more famous climbers? Well, you know, I knew I was going to have some famous names, you know, certainly famous in the climbing world, you know, Reinhold Messner and Royal Robbins, everybody knows those names. But, you know, I did want early on to get some real uh, journeyman, non-famous kind of names. And there was a guy, Don Clonch Gordon, who just you know about four times in my life I ran across his name like in a magazine article usually to do with Fred Becky and he was just this mysterious guy who seemed to be doing really hard stuff for many many years decades so he was obviously a a lifer and and very good and knew next to nothing about him I knew he was uh, seemed to be in the Seattle area or the Cascades predominantly and so he was somebody I wanted to get in this book somehow I found him and went up to his apartment where he had lived for 60 years in Seattle, just this four-story brick building, sort of on a little hill. I mean, just that situation of the building looked like a scene from a 40s movie if you cropped out the other part of the block. Hadn't been renovated forever. I went up. It's kind of wider halls than usual in the old hallways in an apartment building. Bare light bulbs. I went up there. And there he was. Um 
where he'd lived by himself for so many years. And he would do, uh, among these other climbs, he would do these all-the-way-on-foot climbs. He would walk out of that apartment building, down the hall, down the street, out of Seattle, through the suburbs, into the Cascades, all on foot, by himself, into the Cascades, do a first ascent, and walk all the way back. I mean, you talk about a ground-up. Car-to-car, house-to-house. Yeah, and he would do these in Alaska, too. He had some kind of job on a fishing boat or something. He would borrow a canoe, paddle by himself across these ice-choked bays, put the canoe on the beach, and go inland, you know, in these snowy Alaska mountains, do, do a first ascent and, and make it back days long. Crazy. And so when I found him, you know, he, had all, he, he was, God, he was like a monk. You know, he had all these books on Eastern philosophy, tiny, tiny apartment, one room. He had a card table he would set up when he ate and break it back down just to save space. An enigma, you know, seemed quite alone. But his obsession with this climbing and what he was finding with it, and, uh, and he died in his uh, 90s uh, a year or two ago. I would love to have spent a year with him just to see how deep I could get and figure out his motivations right. and rewards. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what he put off. You know, what did he miss in life by doing this other activity. Right. Whatever regrets, if any, he had. Compromise was the word I was looking for. What were his compromises? Right. Yeah. Did you get the sense that a life well lived was more important than everything else from the subject? And yeah. Well, you know, we like to say that. That's a great refrigerator magnet. Yeah. Everybody can relate to that. Right. And I only, but... <clears throat> I only ask that because I, I generally try to ask guests, like, if you couldn't climb or ski, would it be enough? Well, the question becomes, what is a life uh, well lived? And um, what is that at 80 compared to what is it at 20? And a lot of these decisions uh, to be a, you know, a career musician, a career climber, um, are made when we're full of vim and vigor and 18 years old, 20, early 20s, full of all that stuff. We can live forever. You know, we're bulletproof. And so maybe we pass off college, pass off marriage, pass off the kids. And, you know, you're full of that energy well into your 40s. But then things start changing and you're not Superman anymore. And, it, and maybe in the music world, there's no more hits. And maybe it's like, all right, so this is going to be the rest of the life and you've sort of chosen it's too late now you've chosen your friends got married had kids went to college whatever and i'm not saying those things are good or bad but they just are it does affect those choices you make when you're in your 20s they can end up affecting the rest so a life well lived that def definition definitely changes through the years and sometimes those choices come back to uh, I won't say bite you, but to have ramifications. Right. And that's what you see when you work with older people a lot, as I do, is that definition just changes. Right. And sometimes profoundly. Yeah, interesting. I've got some quotes here, and, and I normally don't quote people, but the writing in the book is so beautiful, I can't help myself. But you're, you're quoted as saying, a, you know, aging is a big theme, and uh, obsession and the devotion you put into things and how it can affect friendships, marriages, and finances. And then it's interesting to see when someone's 90, whether they thought it was worth it, achieving this great thing. Did you get the sense that for most of them it was? Yeah, I think so. Everybody's different. There's not a real common theme. 
you know, you look at Don Clonch Gordon and it's just hard to know what's going on in that head. There he is alone in his 90s. No elevator in the building. He's, he's like, well, how old was he? 95, I think. Quite old. I don't want to put words into, I don't want to say what he thought, but it just seemed starkly, coldly alone, his existence. And from what I could gather, there's just not that many people that knew him. I don't know. It was hard to get any information, which to me would lead to, I don't know how social he was. So, you you know, what was he thinking with, when he was out in Alaska and just going off and doing all this? Did, was he lonely? Did he wish he had a few kids and grandkids? Did you find anyone expressing regrets in their later years about their lives or did they even have? I don't think so. I like to point out that there is a dark side to the, this nature and this outdoorsy and these choices. But, you know, I do like to come full circle. I think most of these people loved what they did, obviously. And right. it, there were tons of great moments and fun and vitality. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's an amazing thing to be able to be strong in the mountains and be in that kind of beauty and be very good at something. No, it, it's mostly a happy story. You're not in an office chain. These people lived exciting lives. Right. That's why they're in this book. Who did you want to include in the book who you uh, weren't able to? This is where the tears will start to fall. <laughs> oh, heartbreaking. I mean, just uh, profoundly heartbreaking, some of the people I missed and that I, that I could have had even. Oh, I don't even want to go through it. It'll just almost cheapen. I'm not going to name names because it's just going to bring notice to the fact that they're not in there but anybody who knows about this activity will will see in the time range that I worked on this and who isn't in there it'll stand out but I had um you know huge uh, budgetary constraints and 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 various things uh, really heartbreaking but but I had to I as I told you in the beginning of this interview I was approached it once I got going full steam I was kind of a completist like some kind of butterfly collector you know so I have to have every genome species from every little thing but I finally had to realize and come to terms with the fact that I was missing some of these people that this was a representation maybe a broad stroke representation of this era and it wasn't going to be an encyclopedic who's who I definitely miss some biggies but I'm pretty proud of who I did get. Of course. But Warren Harding was a big... Warren Harding that was, was a heart, one I missed. Yeah. Heartthrob, right? Yeah, that was um, a real bummer. But it made for a good story, if you ever come to the slideshow. It's it, a fantastic story. It, you know, some disappointments in life are, make great bar stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bar talk won't buy you a beer. Right. Well, and I liked how you, you know, kind of characterized it where people would ask you, oh, how you know, how could you not include these people? Or why would you include that person? And, you know, your answer is like, hey, man, I'm doing this on a shoestring. And it's a passion project. And, you know, I kind of got what I got. And like you said, it's a broad stroke. So it's, and it's also my book, you know, there's um, people that I wanted in there, you know, Don Clonch Gordon, I was so serious about getting him in there as much as Messner in a way. I doubt anybody else would have chosen him. Uh, you know, even long-term climber, Don Clunk, who was that? It's my book. I stand behind it. Right. Mistakes and otherwise. Yeah. Well, and I think Outside Magazine, there they had said, you know, your work acted to, quote, both inspire and provoke readers to reflect on how we're transacting our own lives, which end all too quickly. Did you find that was an intention after 
the first few folks or did it just kind of evolve? No, not at all. Like I said, you know, I don't, you know, I'm just, I'm not that clever. <laughs> I think <laughs> these you are. are things I, well, I had to figure it out for myself. Uh, no, I, I know some real bright people, you know, academic approaches to filmmaking or writing or photography. And it's like, God, how do you do that? I'm such a Luddite hillbilly. I mean, it, it's, it's all kind of balls and heart for me. And, and then the brain kind of shows up later. <laughs> right. Uninvited. I had to put those pieces together, that, that sort of philosophical part of it. It's interesting. You know, it was self-education and learning from these people and seeing patterns of so many meetings and talkings. And this happened in the music, the old legends of the music that I photographed as well. But you start seeing, you know, you can't go through life without learning. I mean, you know, you start seeing patterns. And I started seeing this show up. And I didn't want it to be just a dry um, book for climbers about climbing. I mean, that, God, what a yawn, really. Yeah. And something that would be sort of done over tomorrow. It's like, how can you do something like this that does have some lasting you know, value? Yeah. Like the photos that I looked at when I was a little boy that, you know, turned me on and got me interested in stuff I'd never heard of. I wanted anybody to be able to look at these pictures and be like, God, who's that guy? I don't know anything about climbing and I will never climb, but I am intrigued by this guy of, in his life and what he chose to do. This seems interesting. Right. I don't think you have to be a climber to be interested in climbers. I probably have a book of about old sewer workers of Paris and I don't ever want to work in a sewer but it's fascinating to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the most compelling part of the book. You know, the images, they just pull you in. And that's the beauty of your work. Well, thank you. And that's the intention is to, you know, I think these pictures can be successful when they make you wonder who they are, if there's no caption. And these people look great. You know, you know, they, I want them to look, um, I'm not trying to be, you know, I've, I've been burned at the stake a few times. Are you trying to, trying to make them look old and, and not pretty? No, I'm not trying to do that, but I'm also not trying to make them look pretty. Right. But what I am trying to do is I'm inspired by the, I wouldn't have picked anybody for the book that I wasn't inspired by. And it's just my enthusiasm to pass that inspiration on to other people. I would hope they would see it and just, here's a guy that's had a hell of a life. Right. And I would like you to look at the picture and kind of want to know more. Right. I think that's a successful photo. Agreed. Appeal to that curiosity of some type. Tell me about the the women in the book. I mean, obviously, you're, you've focused on a time frame from the 20s to the 1970 when times were different well from the get-go i mean again there was no plan in the beginning but once i seemed to be working on a project then i wanted women in it it's so funny how the the me too and the uh the uh the whole women's issue is so out of hand right now i i support it but i grew up um you know just i never thought of women this or men that i just saw great people from a very early ida lupino this fantastic Film director Dorothea Lang, Berenice Abbott. There were strong, amazing women from the get-go. I never saw a difference or a problem or a anything. Just people. And now it's like all we talk about. It's like, have we not learned anything? But anyway, I wanted as many women in this book as I could get. But there weren't that many back then, overall. They die just as fast as men do. So there was an even smaller uh, 
collection to draw from. And I got who I could get. Um, I, I would like to have had more for sure. Yeah. But I'm very proud of who I got. And uh, they have, each of them have amazing stories. So To go with the photo for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked hearing you talk about Gwen Moffat as the first. Well, Gwen Moffat is just, she represents, I mean, you know, I do like to say that I'm proud to have her as one of these strong women, but I I don't see her as a woman. She's just this remarkable character that was living this life, super bold, super on her own. Right. Didn't need a guy, didn't need... Didn't need anything. Didn't need anything. She was a a powerhouse of... First humor, first British female uh, uh, mountain guide. You know, she was leading climbs in the Alps, Wales, living by herself in these abandoned stone cottages. On the in Wales, right? Frigid coast of Wales, I think Scotland. You should read her book if you haven't. The Space Beneath My Feet, her autobiography is fantastic. Whether you're into climbing or not, just what a life she carved out for herself. Right, yeah. Goodbye, military. Hello, mountains. Yeah, but she also became a mystery writer. She's a a wonderful person. Oh, that's cool. What women would you have liked to have included that weren't able to make it? Oh, God, there was some... I can't even remember some of the names that were from the 30s that were very active. And again, I just... uh, Some of these I didn't know myself that I kind of found out. And some of them were alive still when I started the project can't rattle off all the names unfortunately yeah uh, life happens one of my favorite stories of the book is that of you know shooting ricardo cassine when he was 101 in italy um and that photo of him you know he's old but he's in you know like you said in the show he's propped up he's looking out on on the mountains that he did so much climbing in and his family and his great great grandchildren and it's just a a really beautiful image to me. Can you well, elaborate on that? Well, that was the uh, photo that I guess turned my project from Sierra to American to now international. Time is precious. These people are dying. So I was definitely trying to, uh, I had a focus on getting the oldest ones first before they died. So, you know, I knew Ricardo started climbing in the late 20s. Again, this was dodgy search engine pre, not pre-internet, but, you know. You're handwriting letters, right? I was still handwriting letters and, you know, finding a friend that could translate something. Or, you know, I think I went to the university once to get someone to translate my letter into Italian. And you would send it, I would send it snail mail and wait for three months. And some of these people, I would get a response, you know, he died 10 years ago or 30 years ago. You just didn't know. There was no Wikipedia. Right. But, uh, you know, I got a response from Ricardo Cassin's son. And he said, uh, you know, he's he's getting older. I would say, you better hurry. And it took me about a year to finally get over there. And I think I was over there on an album cover shoot in Spain. You know, I've always been an, on an artist's budget. So it was like I needed some reason to get to Europe first and then make my way to Italy. He was up in the, in the Italian Alps near Lecco. Lake Como, which is where he was born, his, this area. And by the time I took a train and a car and made my way up to this tiny village, yeah, as you said, there he was. They had parked him in his in his chair in front of the window that was open. The amazing view of the Italian Alps that he had been climbing in for close to a century. And they were just having this vigil, you know, this beautiful Italian vigil. It looked like... Uh, 
kind of a painting, or it looked like The Godfather with his sepia-toned cinematography and this late afternoon sunlight kind of washing across the yard. Little great-great-great-grandchildren running by laughing. You know, they've probably been there for a week. That's just such an old thing we don't really do in America. They were there, and they were going to hang out until he died, making food, kind of a party in a way, except that someone's on his last leg. And I shot some photos. And, you know, he was a hundred and a half years old. And, you know, he was dying when I met him. And he did die a week after I left. So there it was, the first European, which... Um, do you believe in that fate of that happening as it played out? Which fate? Him being part of the Project One, being able to contact him over all that time and, and then go to his home and he's in that state, in that kind of celebratory context. And right afterwards he dies. Maybe. I don't know if I believe in fate or not, but at the same time, there's always uh, evidence of it <laughs> constantly being thrown in your face. So there's coincidence and then there's fate, and you know we, we will never know the answer of that. All the scientists and theologians will argue to the end of time, but you know our brains can make up patterns and connections to anything. That's what our little, tiny, fragile human brains need to do more than anything is to make sense of all this stuff. Right. And we're very good at it. Oh, you know, there, there's a God, there's a connection, there's a this or a that. Right. We're experts at doing that. Whether I believe in it, I don't know. It's fun to play with. And certainly a lot of things happened, you know, in life right. as it is for everybody. But on this book, who can say? Right. Interesting. I was very lucky to get him. I can say that. Right. I do believe in luck. Right. There you go. What's your take on the Brotherhood of the Rope? You know, we talk a lot about the spiritual connection between climbers and climbing partners specifically whether on you know recreational climb or big expedition. I'm assuming your subjects shared strong opinions on it too. Those indelible bonds that you form when you're doing. Well, there's, yeah, there's no doubt about it, especially if you've had a partner, a frequent partner, a familiar partner. I mean, you can see those brotherhoods throughout life. It, you know, so we all love that as climbers, that, you know, that brotherhood of the rope, and we identify and kind of right. solemnly, quietly nod at each other. And yeah. it's nice to be a member of a club. But you see that in music. I mean, if you're on stage singing harmony vocals with someone for 15 years, there's a brotherhood of the, the harmony. Right, or I guess we should say sisterhood too, right? Or uh, Of course. Um, this always yeah, applies. But uh, It's powerful stuff. Yeah, it's those connections that you make in life. I mean, we like to segregate it into climbing. Okay, oh, yeah, the brotherhood of the rope. And I love, I've always loved that phrase. Yeah. It's all very romantic and great to me. It, just like in other things, you know, you could have two climbers who get in arguments and become lifelong enemies. But, mm -hmm. you know, you can imagine them coming together. If, if they were on a plane that crashed in the Andes and they were the guys that had to get people down, they would go back into the old team. Right. Because it was the brotherhood of the rope. Yeah. I'm a sucker for all that stuff. Yeah, me too. But, you know, it certainly shows up in other parts of life, too. Agreed. Um, but in that climbing world, all for it. I love that the the romance of that phrase. And Well, man, Jim, I, I mean, for you to come is a big highlight for us. And I know we've been trying to do it for, for a couple years. So I can't thank you enough for making the time. Well, I'm time. honored to be asked. And I got to say, you did like the best one that's been done. Oh, and I've, yeah. um, a year and a half ago, I was a neophyte, amateur, public speaker, 
You're a natural. Interviews subject, but I've done a lot of these now, and, and you made it so easy and perfect. Oh, good. Yeah. So I highly recommend. Well, we just set the table. Anyone else, uh, they'll have a good time with you. I yeah. really appreciate all a, you did. It's a fantastic show. And then, you know, like on a personal level, I I think of you as a kid, you know, reading reading the book. I, you know, envision the stories of you as a kid in North Carolina pouring over those life magazines or the atlases or spinning the globe or whatever. And I think your, what your work will do invariably is inspire people in the same vein in the future. You know, they'll be pouring over those images and reading Greg's amazing writing. Well, I got to say, you know, I would hope, you know, I can't even imagine that that's true, but maybe it is, but that is, I'm, I'm evidence. My <laughs> highest, um, you know, something I would want to do in life is that because I got so much from people, you know, as I said, I've, I've got no shortage of heroes in books and, Stuff I poured over like, you know, a maniac dreaming about this stuff. And if I can add one little thing that sparks somebody, you know, that would be life complete for me. Right. Well, technically you did. Well, 60 of them. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Yeah. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Afterglow's production staff is a team of three. Myself, sound engineer Miles Heaps, and producer Kristen Hanna Madigan. The music of season three is provided by the talented Old String Duo. Make sure to check them out on Instagram and listen to more of their work. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. If you like what we are doing, please subscribe, review, and tell your friends. Season 3 of Afterglow continues on Monday, December 9th with climbing author Deirdre Wallenick. Wallenick's book, The Sharp End, is a magnificent story of redemption through sport and details how she found herself through commitment to rock climbing. <laughs>